If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. The aircraft carrying Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor left Chinese airspace, and they're on their way home. So, yeah, that was quite an announcement uh, over the weekend. And, you know, we would hoped we'd hear that announcement once we learned uh, on Friday uh, of that deal that Meng Wanzhou struck with the U.S. Department of Justice. Now, the Huawei CFO, daughter of the company's founder, was going to be on her way back to China that it was a pretty reasonable expectation on Canada's part uh, that we would soon have the two Michaels on their way back home. But maybe we didn't expect it to happen as quickly as it did. So it's, it's been a really interesting few days here. And, I mean, it doesn't appear as though any concessions were made uh, on the Americans' part here, that this was the, the deferred prosecution agreement that had been on the table for some time for Meng Wanzhou, that they'd rejected before and for whatever reason decided now to accept. And then they released the two Michaels, put them on a plane back home. Now, China's denying that there was any connection there, but, I mean, it seems pretty obvious that there is. So where does it leave us now? Look, this was a thousand days of captivity for these two Canadians in pretty brutal conditions. And what was really essentially hostage diplomacy, trying to kidnap these two Canadians because they were upset that we had arrested Meng Wanzhou and commenced extradition proceedings so that she could answer to legitimate charges in the United States. So now that this is resolved, that's a big one off the list of, of irritants between Canada and China, but there are indeed others. Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Affairs at uh, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Professor Carvin, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. So it was interesting because, and, and I think you were, were kind of thinking along the lines as a lot of folks that we may see the, the two Michaels back here soon, but maybe it was going to be weeks, maybe it was going to be months. So what, what did you make of the fact that it just, you know, that it happened that quickly? Yeah, I almost got whiplash on Friday. It was it was yeah. crazy. Uh, just the fact that the, you know, we found out 10 a.m. Eastern time, so I guess it was like 8 a.m. your time, that there was going to be this deferred prosecution agreement, something, frankly, I had been hoping for and others had been hoping for as probably the fastest solution to this ongoing crisis. Um, and then next thing we know, she makes a court appearance at 1 a.m., uh, sorry, 1 p.m. New York time. An hour later, she makes a statement outside the Vancouver courtroom, and then she's off, right? <laughs> she's off to, to, to China. And I thought, okay, you know, I've been on CBC that day basically saying, you know, oh, it's probably going to be three to six months before we really see any movement on this. Because, you know, China, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious why they, they effectively kidnapped these two citizens, but they were going through the whole, uh, you know, process, of the whole legal process. They had they have a very particular system where, you know, someone's charged, they're convicted, and then they're sentenced. And Michael Spavor had been sentenced, but Michael Kovrig had not. And I would have thought the training system would have, like, at least gone through the 
act of <laughs> him. But no, mm-hmm. no, they were on a plane pretty much the, you know, they were they were pretty much being sent out of China the exact same moment that Meng was released. And uh, I, I hadn't seen that coming because I would have thought China would have wanted to maintain the fig leaf of pretending that this had nothing to do with the Meng case. But they right. chose not to go that way. Well, it, yeah, I, I think, you know, the actions speak louder than words here. But what, what do you make of the, the denial today the, that this, you know, they released these two because of uh, concerns about their health, they say? So the term I've been using for this is international gaslighting. Um, it's not. Mm-hmm. No, it's, 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 you know, they've been making a, a, like a series of just absolutely bizarre Claims. I mean, let's start with the fact that they got, you know, the timing of this is, is there. But it's not, it's not, you know, even if it was a coincidence, like they would have, these individuals would have had to have been taken from prison, given shower, a new set of clothing, and then sent them, you know, on a plane. And just so happens at the same time that Meng's being released. I mean, let's start there. And then they started making really bizarre claims that it was about health issues. Uh, they suggested that Michael Kovrig and Michael Favre were Five, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever because Canada doesn't have a human intelligence agency um, that would do that kind of collection of, of intelligence. It just, it, anyway, nothing here makes sense. Um, it really is either just some bold-faced lies or some backtracking because everyone in the world has pretty much figured out that, yes, this was, in fact, a, a kidnapping, and now China has basically proven that. So was this China backing down i mean is this china capitulating i mean it's it's hard to see what else this might be there yeah i don't understand what this is like like i said i don't look anytime you see china make a statement like there really is one primary audience in mind and that is china right um like so like they're making a statement to china and to the chinese people the second thing is though that i do think they needed to provide some kind of explanation for why this uh, took place, right? Like, why did they release Michael Covert before he had been sentenced? And they hadn't really explained why that was. So I think a lot of those statements do that. And then the third thing is, like, yeah, they want to push back on this idea that they engage in hostage diplomacy and things like this. And, and again, that's where they kind of provide, like, this, the you know, subtle hints that Michael Koberg and Sabo were spies, which, of course, they weren't. Um, you know, so, so there's a number of audiences that they're playing to. But other than that, I mean, I think their, their attitude is just, you know, we can get away with it and we will. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, that's the thing, because it, it did work, obviously, in, in terms of, you know, pushing Canada in a certain direction or even just, you know, discouraging Canada from from taking positions that, that might offend China. So in a way it worked, but they, they have, at least for now, put aside that car because look, Canada's got some big decisions to make. Huawei and, and 5G is an obvious one, but there are others. So China has decided then, I guess, for now, with the, their... They're, they're done playing this card for the time being? Yeah, um, I, we don't know, right? I mean, I yeah. wouldn't put it past uh, China. Like, if, if, you know, given President Xi's foreign policy, I don't think we should discount the very real possibility that if there is some kind of, um, you know, decision on Huawei, that, that there could very easily be retaliation, uh, either against the Canadian company, which could be forbidden from operating in China, um, I certainly hope it's not uh, another arbitrary detention, although we, we definitely have to rule that out. Um, it, but it, it raises this interesting question. I keep getting this question um, 
and the aftermath of, of what happened on Friday, which is, did China win? Does this prove that hostage diplomacy works? And I don't think we know the answer to that question yet. Like, I'm trying to think of it in terms of short, medium, and long term. Um, in the short term, China definitely got what it wanted. In the medium to long term, though, I mean, I don't know how effective hostage diplomacy will be because eventually the states are going to catch on to these kinds of things, right? And they, it can't last forever. And, you know, there's a, you know, states will take steps to, to make sure that or try to risk manage the possibility of their citizens effectively being held hostage to, to achieve a certain um, political ends. And I think also we shouldn't down play the fact that, you know, the United States and all this did get something that I wanted, which was a senior Huawei official effectively admitting wrongdoing, not criminal activity, but wrongdoing in misleading, um, you know, bank officials to circumvent U.S. sanctions on Iran, which is like a whole yeah. other thing, which we can talk about another day. But, um, you know, I think the idea that, you know, having that official statement where Meng Wanzhou has admitted wrongdoing is actually, you know, going to play pretty well into, you know, U.S. efforts to try and curtail Huawei around the world um, and to make certain arguments about Chinese technology generally. So I think that the, you know, we don't really know what the long-term efforts actually were. Or well, what it, it, the, but, what, yeah. who, the, who really, yeah. you know, people are saying who won, who lost. And, and I don't think we know yet. Mm-hmm. No, that's a fair point. Um, you know, like I said at the introduction, that this was obviously a, a big source of tension. You know, when it comes to Canada-China relations, and yes. that that's now been removed. That's that's off the table. But I don't know. Things things clearly aren't normalized. Canada has some tough decisions to make. I mean, I mentioned Huawei. Obviously, now Taiwan has requested entry into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Canada, as a member, is going to have to take a stand on that. We got the Beijing Olympics. Uh, you know, there's human rights concerns in, in China. There's still a whole host of issues. So how significantly have Canada-China relations uh, shifted over the last few days here? I mean, at least in terms of the public perception of China and the popularity of China, I mean, it's just absolutely plummeted. I think there's an Angus Reid poll which suggested something like only 14% of Canadians have a favorable view of China now, uh, which is astonishing, really. Um, you know, I mean, it really, this, this whole episode has really just kind of kiboshed Canada-China relations. I expect that they will stay cold for some time. I don't think there's a massive appetite for Canada to re-engage with China in a big way anytime soon. And actually, you know, I forced myself to read the manifestos of all the political parties during the election. And while there was very little on foreign policy, they all, to a certain extent, touch on China. And, um, yeah, I do believe that there's multi-party consensus here about taking firmer stances on things like the Uyghur genocide, on intellectual property theft, on, you know, espionage and cyber espionage, on clandestine foreign influence. None of these things are going away because the two Michaels are back. And I should also mention, and something I do try to highlight, is the fact that, you know, yes, the two Michaels are gone, you know, are back in Canada, but there's a number of other Canadians that are being held by Beijing right now that yeah. don't get the same amount of attention, like Hussein Salil, who, you know, desperately needs, um, you know, our help. And we shouldn't just, you know, even, even if we wanted to carry on, you know, we said, let's let bygones be bygones. You know, we have to remember other Canadians that are that are in similar situations, um, and, and we should be working to ensure that they're freed as well. So, I think there's a lot um, of of things that are going to block 
a resumption of, of normal ties. I actually think the idea of normal ties, quote unquote, normal ties with China is probably not going to happen for some time. And um, that's, you know, but that's but what we really need to do is figure out what we as a country want to do in the Asia Pacific, in the Indo-Pacific. We haven't had a foreign policy in over 15 years. And that's a crazy thing to say. We're a G7 yeah. country. We haven't had a foreign policy for over 15 years. What is it that we want to achieve in the Indo-Pacific, let alone globally? Um, and, and how are we going to achieve those things? And if we're going to achieve those things, you know, who are we going to do it with? And these are fundamental questions we haven't asked ourselves. I do think the Michael question has kind of sucked the oxygen out of the room, but it really is about time that Canada starts thinking hard about what its place is in the world. We need something better than a slogan about a feminist foreign policy. Yeah. Well, and, and look, I mean, it, it matters to Canadians, or it should, but, you know, you wrote about this recently. It matters to our allies, and they're, they're taking notice of this, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, well, they're, they're kind of moving. It's not like they're saying, okay, you know, like, I don't think they're totally throwing their hands up in the air, but the fact is they're, they see us not making a decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, they see us kind of stuck in paralysis, and they're moving on. They're not going to wait for us. Right. They're going to move on with their foreign policies, with their um, with their plans. Uh, Biden wants to pivot to the Pacific. And that's happening now. We saw that with the Australian, UK, US uh, agreements um, from from earlier this month. We yeah. see the European Union developing an Indo-Pacific strategy. Where are we? Because we're not in either of those two things. And other countries are moving on without us. And Canada always speaks loudest when we speak with our allies. And if our allies are, like, kind of leaving us behind the road, that's not a good place for us to be. So what we really need to do is to determine our interests and then convey those interests to our allies and then figure out how we're going to work with them. And they'll have a better idea of how to work with us. But this is just – it's a very frustrating thing to me because it's just something that no government in Canada has really felt is important to do in in recent times. And now I think it's coming to bite us a bit. Well, yeah, I think so. We'll leave it there. Uh, by the way, I'll let people know they want to read more about uh, national security uh, matters as it pertains to Canada. Stand on guard, your book from uh, earlier this year. Stephanie Carvin, thanks for joining us here today. I always appreciate the insight. Hey, thanks for having me on. All the best. Uh, that is Stephanie Carvin, national security uh, expert, associate professor of international affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, as uh, we mentioned uh, her book from this year. It's called Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. All right, welcome back. Rob Rickenbridge with you here on this Monday afternoon. Uh, we'll have some more time for your phone calls uh, as time allows here today. In uh, Calgary, you can reach us 403-974-8255. In Edmonton, 780-496-0063. Right now, though, I want to turn our attention to some important new research on a very important uh, but delicate topic and conversation. That is suicide and how we effectively implement campaigns in Canada uh, to reduce instances of suicide. And part of that is understanding the problem. When it comes to the past year and a half, and and certainly through 2020, it was a a remarkably stress-filled, anxiety-filled year, unlike any that that most of us have probably ever lived through. Uh, Not knowing what was going to happen with the pandemic, you know, the, the economic anxiety 
of not knowing what's going to happen uh, with your job, for example, and everything that goes with that. Obviously, for many people dealing with serious health issues or a loved one going through serious health issues or worse, having to, to bury a loved one. So there are all kinds of, of emotional and, and mental health pressures on all of us. And I think because of that, a lot of people assume that that meant the problem of suicide was exacerbated, that it got worse. But it actually didn't. And it's important, I think, to, to A, point that out, but B, to understand it. In fact, a new study finds that in 2020, suicides in Canada fell by 32%, which seems pretty significant. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, why that might be and what it tells us about uh, the phenomenon and, and how to combat it. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon one of the authors of this new study, Dr. Roger McIntyre, is a professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto. Dr. McIntyre, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Oh, good to be with you. Thanks for covering such an important topic. Well, it really is. And from your perspective, maybe help us understand why it's it's important to, you know, to, to understand what's going on on, on something like this and, you know, some of these assumptions that, that seem to be out there around, uh, you know, this pandemic. Well, you know, it's a really nice point, and, you, and I like the way you kind of set that up because, I mean, there's no doubt suicide is, is a tragedy beyond words and description. And unfortunately, the suicide rates in our country, in Canada, have been haven't changed a whole lot the last 10, 20 years, quite frankly. The uh, the ratio, as they're often presented, for example, by different organizations, has remained remarkably consistent. I think everybody would agree the last year and a half has just been awful. The stress has been immeasurable. And you've seen a, a number of surveys and reports come out from our group, other groups, showing rising rates of conditions like depression uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's stood to reason that we might, in fact, see an increase in suicide. I think, in fact, I would start off by saying that the results that we have are provisional results. We, we, they still need to be uh, fully uh, uh, filled in. They are mm -hmm. provisional, and we'll see how things go over the next, say, three to six months, et cetera. But we had a little peak early, again, provisional, and we saw a bit of a downturn in some of the numbers. And, and this has been seen in some other countries around the world during what we all agree has been a very stressful time. What it reminds us is, is that, first of all, there's many, many factors that lead to suicide, not one single factor can account for suicide or what, why a person would uh, die by suicide. And there's not one single factor that can protect anybody. It's a very, very complicated area. But what we can begin to assume here, and this, this is an assumption, again, there's hypotheses here. There were some uh, systems that were put in place that there is good reason to believe could have protected people. And a couple that we highlighted in this article we published is, first of all, psychiatric first aid. We saw virtual health care, mental health care, and uh, really step up during this time. And you've seen this service right across the country. Uh, that's one hypothesis. Uh, a a non-mutually exclusive hypothesis might also be some of the support that was put in place around, you know, small businesses, uh, try to help people economically to get to the next month of rent and things like that. These types of provisions that is providing economic security and, of course, health care security vis-a-vis -vis getting access to psychiatric services have been shown in other research to mitigate, that is to lower some of the rates of suicide at the national level. So it's a testable hypothesis, but these are hypotheses that we think are important to consider because in the legacy of COVID, my hope is the legacy of COVID will be a much more accessible, equitable, and really high-quality psychiatric service for Canadians. 
What do you make of the argument that there is kind of a, a societal factor here that, at, at least certainly through the first part of the pandemic, there was this sense that, you know, we're rallying behind one another. We're kind of all in this together. And there yeah, was this, absolutely. you know, we're going to confront this crisis together kind of attitude. Do you, do you think that might have had a, an impact? Absolutely. And you know, we put that in the article as well as a possible consideration. Again, you know, the you know I often refer to the metaphor of the playlist. There's many play uh, songs in the playlist here that could explain this, so to speak, and that certainly is one. There's no doubt about it. Risk has certainly been well presented to, to the population the last year and a half. That is the risk, that being the stress. But the way to think about it, the way we kind of sort of simply think about it, is you have risk and then you have resiliency. And just to put that metaphorically, you know, life has a lot of uh, bumps and bruises and terrible stressors to many people, but to the degree to which you have individual or community support, that, that's your resiliency. And I think it's a very fair hypothesis and a very interesting hypothesis that there's been more collectivistic kind of thinking. People have been more connected to maybe uh, family and friends. And I say that with the disclaimer that it's not the case for everybody. Not everyone is enjoying that type of situation. Many of our population are not, but some are. And I think that may also be playing a role here. And this has been described also in the literature around this during previous events, for example, during wars and disasters and terrible public traumas. So there's no doubt that we are talking about reducing the risk, but we're also trying about uh, trying to augment the resiliency. And perhaps that's what's going on here as well. And then the points come up because, you know, we did see uh, certainly a, a tragic increase when it comes to overdose deaths, uh, opioid yes. overdose, uh, you know, that yes. th that side of things. And yeah. there is that question of whether, you know, there's there's sort of some, I, I guess, overlap here. I mean, how, how do you address yes. that? Yes. You know, it's a, it's a really astute point. And I think that, you know, in the paper, what we tried to emphasize is, first of all, look, this is a, a national tragedy. We, 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 we don't accept any suicides as acceptable. And uh, we want to try and, uh, you know, affect this posit positively for Canadians. Um, we do, in fact, recognize, well, first of all, again, I emphasize these are provisional data. Uh, and I also put in the paper that I do wonder, I mean, some of the people across our poisonings, opioid overdoses, often the coroner doesn't know, often we don't know if that was actually, in quotes, an accident, end of quotes, or was there some intention to that? And these things are very difficult to know, in fact, impossible in many circumstances. Canadians, I think, have reacted with a lot of concern uh, with the opioid uh, overdose deaths in this country during the last year and a half. And unfortunately, I, I'm going to actually have to say that I think some of those are probably intentional. We don't know the number. It's impossible to know. Uh, but I think that's another issue. So I don't think that, you know, that we should discount that. That's something we want to also keep in the back of our minds uh, as well uh, as we begin to look at a larger calculation. But that's unfortunately uh, something we have to be open minded to. Yeah. Now, again, and, and, you know, taking the data at face value, that, that it either was a, an overall drop in, in 2020, yep. that, that it's important that that not lead to complacency, right? And part of the point of this study is to look at what worked and how we can shape suicide reduction policies going forward. But, you know, yes. there's also that concern that as these, these issues drag on, this anxiety, period of anxiety drags on, that we could see things go in the wrong direction. You know, that's so true, and I think you've captured what I think is the nub of, of this article. In other words, we, we certainly need to always look at our data and uh, have the best available data to inform our analytics, 
Um, but there is, in fact, a larger question here. The larger question is, is that as a country, as a society, we, we, we don't want suicide. This is not what this is. This is this is beyond words, traumatizing and awful. And it is preventable. Um, the notion that suicide's not preventable is, is, is untrue. It's, it is a, you know, there's a lot of pre- uh, prevention can be done here. And I think we need to approach it uh, with a tremendous degree of priority, with a tremendous degree of science supporting our decision. And these are decisions that require policy, that require health systems engagement, and of course, have many different levels involved. But what we've struggled with in Canada for a long, long time is giving people access to psychiatric first aid when they need it. What I mean by that is to get access to multidisciplinary, high-quality psychiatric services if they need it. Mm-hmm. And it's been shown in our, in our literature, in our, in our science, in other, in other areas, that does have a mitigating effect on suicide if that's available. And I do hope that is a legacy of this going forward. I hope we don't take our eye off this ball. We keep our eyes focused on this ball. I think Canadians would very much prioritize that. Canadians deserve not just physical health, but also mental health and social well-being. And I think that's that's really the message here. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, this research is published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine. Dr. McIntyre, thanks again for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for hosting me. Take good care. Bye-bye. You as well. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Roger McIntyre, lead author on this study, as mentioned, published at the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine. He's a professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto. So it's it's it, these are good news findings in that I think a lot of people assumed or feared the worse, uh, worse when it came to last year. But again, it's not about complacency. Because Japan's an example of a country where initially they too saw a drop. But then things started to, to move in the wrong direction. So it's about recognizing that. But it's also, so what what would have made a difference in in keeping those numbers down? And as we move forward, you know, in, in ensuring that we're doing everything we can to prevent this from happening, what are the lessons to be drawn here? Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Afternoons on 770 CHQR. So we played uh, earlier in the program uh, part of the conversation that Premier Jason Kenney had with uh, Roy Green on these airwaves yesterday afternoon. And, you know, kind of a, a, an explanation or defense of uh, some of the decisions that the Premier has made and how his government has, has attempted to navigate this fourth wave. Uh, certainly he's come under a lot of criticism and, and not just from, you know, the other side of the benches, as it were. There, there's been a lot of discontent and it's been ruined for a while uh, within the UCP about Jason Kenney's leadership. Has he made the right decisions? Is he the right guy to lead the party into the next election? Now, there was uh, a lot of buildup to a caucus meeting that was held last week the potential that there might even be some open debate about Kenny's future. There had been calls within the party even for him to resign. Uh, Nothing concrete came out of that meeting, though, other than the fact it appears the party has agreed to maybe speed up that uh, that that leadership review. But that's still going to be, you know, sometime early next year before that happens. So can the United Conservative Party stay united? Is Jason Kenny still the, the solution? When it comes to to uh, uniting the right in Alberta, or has he become part of the problem? Well, it's an interesting uh, op-ed in the Calgary Herald today with the headline, Alberta's feuding conservatives must be careful what they wish for. Joining us on the line is the author of that piece. Uh, his name is Evan Menzies. He's a senior campaign strategist with Crestview Strategy, former director of communications with both the United Conservative Party and the Wild Rose Caucus. Evan, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. 
Hey, Rob. Uh, thanks for having me. So obviously you've been sitting back and, and watching all of this unfold and, and probably talking to a lot of people, I would imagine, along the way. But what, what finally prompted you know you to sit down and write this piece? Yeah, you know, look, looking back in the past week, obviously it was uh, it was drama filled, and you know, as you mentioned earlier, uh, could kind of see it coming over the last few weeks. We saw cases build up and uh, and lots of speculation about things like vaccine mandates. Uh, which eventually, obviously, became public policy. Come out, and I, I think one of the one of the questions, um, and I, I wrote this in the piece that uh, conservatives and party members directly really need to ask themselves is: uh, for those who are asking for immediate resignations or uh, leadership reviews this fall, um, what exactly are they hoping to do with the party or the government here in the short term? And um, as there, you know, I wouldn't surprise your listeners, Rob that there are always other agendas at play. Uh, there are folks in the back scenes or, you know, different plotting, or they might be unhappy with the party since uh, unity started, since the leadership race. And so it, it should be time as, you know, um, we've seen uh, mention of a, a, a VP at the party ask for resignation. We've seen a few caucus members ask for resignation. Um, you know, what, what, what actually do they hope to accomplish over the next couple months? And it, it's not really clear to me they have, any sort of clear vision or message or public health policy in mind, it seems to me they have more of a personal axe to grind with with the premier at this point. And frankly, it's just that may be the case. But as you mentioned, there is a leadership review process. It's been in the party bylaws since the 2020 AGM. It had been determined that there would be a leadership review in 2022. As you had mentioned, it's now set for the spring. Uh, they, let, let's let that play out at the at the leadership review uh, arena um, for party members to decide, not for people who have an axe to grind right now to decide. Certainly, and let's let's get through this fourth wave because, frankly, if if we were to dive straight into an interim uh, leadership process, so let's say the premier resigned tomorrow, the caucus is probably split up in four different directions. There are those who are, of course, upset with any type of health restrictions. It's a legitimate view to have. There are those uh, obviously very upset about uh, the vaccine um, passport or requirement to have a vaccine for certain businesses. And then there are those who seem to be upset that we uh, that, the, that the premier made the decision to open up the summer at all. So it's not clear to me on an intern government how that caucus would stick together. And the leadership race would be at a time while we're coming out of a Delta driven wave where folks would be arguing about vaccine mandates and frankly would become, in my view, a bit of a sideshow and uh, and not really. Um, be of much credit uh, for the government or uh, or public policy in this province over the next several months. It's interesting, though, because, you know, I mean, leaders, are, parties are about more than just their leaders, right? And, and conservatism or conservative movement or any political movement uh, is supposed to be about ideas and not necessarily individuals. So at what point is it fair to say that, well, the leader is part of the problem here the leader is an obstacle to to us getting the movement of the party to where it needs to be because i i think what seems like a plea for unity is is also kind of a defense of jason kenney here on your part is it i i i certainly believe that uh jason is is the best man for the position right now um you know Members ultimately will have their say uh, whether Jason is the right guy to have uh, at the helm uh, for the next election. It's a legitimate question to reflect on. Listen, it's been a tough year. I don't think uh, you'll find too many conservatives in this province who will think that uh, uh, Jason's been batting a thousand this year. Um, but I mean, the 
the practical raw politics of the moment that we're in right now is that um, if if you're worried about implementing a conservative agenda as a party member, uh, we campaigned on a, a platform in 2019 that is still being implemented. Uh, Jason's very close to uh, uh, getting most of those uh, promises uh, uh, across the finish line. Members should let him finish that job. Um, by the time the leadership review has happened, most of the work uh, that was promised in the last campaign will have been implemented. And listen, there's there have been some bold reforms, things like MLA recall, referenda legislation, we've got an equalization referenda uh, just next month, which uh, I remember when we brought it up um, when I was with the Wild Rose Party, was seen as a bit of a far-fetched agenda. But here it is. There have been some bold conservative items that have come in. And so, you know, there's, there's there will be a leadership review next year. Um, there will be time to get to that. But frankly, if, if Jason were to step down tomorrow, if caucus were to force him to step down tomorrow, uh, that conservative agenda would be sideswiped. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to public health policy, uh, it leaves, uh, uh, quite, quite frankly, in my mind, it, it, it seems to be an ungovernable situation if you were to have the governing caucus deeply divided, probably around three, four different dividing lines, and an interim uh, premier who... You know, he'd have to be sitting in, in those meetings with Dr. Dina Hinshaw and public health officials and making tough decisions, as Jason has had over the last year and a half. And how does he go back to caucus, uh, who will be in the middle of a leadership race and, and get that support? I, I don't know how it could possibly. Um, it's just not a, a stable situation, and I don't think it's what Albertans, frankly, would, would want right now. Right. No, and I think there's something to that. I mean, you know, political chaos would not be helpful. I don't think anyone's... I don't think there's a serious argument that, that that would be good in terms of what we're dealing with right now. But with regard to other issues, and it's interesting you mentioned the equalization referendum, because that's specifically been cited by some of Kenny's critics, you know, within the UCP or the conservative movement, that some of this might be in jeopardy. I mean, if, if Kenny were to, maybe it's wrong to phrase it this way, but if, if Kenny were to lose the equalization referendum, if, if the vote goes against him, that would be quite a blow, wouldn't it? And, and the argument that he's moving this agenda forward, that, that would be harder to argue, wouldn't it? Uh, sure. Under, yeah, under that scenario, I, I, I certainly think you're correct uh, if, if that were to happen. But listen, I, I, we heard that some of that argument here in Alberta during the recent federal election that, that, um, that Premier Kenny, um, that, that the UCP dragged down the vote. I, I'm, I'm not so convinced of that. Um, and I'm not so convinced that uh, that voters aren't smart enough to see the difference between a cause that, um, when it comes to the equalization referendum, asking for a more fair deal with with, with Canada, and and then trying to take a, uh, a quick partisan shot at the premier uh, during the uh, municipal elections uh, during the referenda. I, I I have a tough time uh, seeing that as a uh, um, a legitimate narrative. I, I haven't seen data to justify that um, in my time looking at uh, either public polling or, or internal polling. Uh, so, you know, it's it, it, it certainly it, for those who want to see the premier uh, not get to the point where he's still a premier by the time the referendum happens. It, you know, it's it's a good line of messaging. I just don't think it's it's plausible or realistic to happen. Well, and, and so, yeah, look, there's between now and, and spring when, when there's a leadership review, I mean, you know, things might really start to improve dramatically. And, and we all hope that by spring we're out of this this pandemic for the most part. And, you know, we're into some period of normalcy and economic growth. And I think that, you know, there there's some political tailwinds there that would be good for the premier. But, you know, in between now and then, there's the possibility, as I mentioned, the equalization referendum going sideways, the premier having to potentially break his word yet again and impose a, another lockdown. I mean, 
you know, there are wins he can deliver in the coming months, but there's also a lot of uh, additional losses he could chalk up. I mean, what what needs to happen, you know, to ensure that that he comes out of that leadership race in, in good position and is ready to lead the party to, to re-election in 2023? Yeah, it's a good question. Listen, I've I've uh, I've chatted with uh, fellow conservatives in, in the province, and I, I, I don't think, um, you know, some of it's of his own own doing and um you know, I think the premier's said said as much, I, but I, I don't think um, uh, we could have seen more things go sideways and out of his control over the last eighteen months. And uh, just that sometimes been been dealt a bad hand, and that happens in politics when you're in government. You have to learn to adjust. Um, you know, for him to be successful over the next, you know, up to the leadership review and and to survive the leadership review and 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 possibly contest the next election, I think Albertans will have to. Uh, start seeing some success when it comes to the battle against COVID. Uh, obviously, we have got to get those vaccination rates up. I think something that will really change the game is um, you know, hopefully by early 2022, if we uh, if if uh, vaccinations open up for those under the age of 12, uh, that solves a big piece of the puzzle uh, with regards to managing the pandemic. Um, but I, I think the biggest piece, um, you know, it's not not a big secret starting to see some dividends pay off when it comes to the economy people have to really start feeling like alberta's got its swagger back i can't uh, tell you the number of times i've been in conversations with folks who just you know were, uh, really miss that that sense that alberta was on top that this was the best place to be in canada and they, to be able to say that confidently and with pride and so you know, it's a lot to ask in the next six, eight months, but it's got to happen. And, uh, you know, I, I I would never count Jason Kenney out in a political battle. He's been he's been around for a long time and he's uh, he's done, um, you know, he's been he's known as a winner. and He knows how to win campaigns and he knows how to be successful. And he's just, he obviously needs to start seeing that translate here in governing the next six to eight months. Yeah, great point. We'll leave it there. Evan, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate this. Awesome. You bet. Anytime. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's Evan Menzies. He's a senior campaign strategist with, uh, strategist with Crestview Strategy, uh, former director of communication uh, with the UCP and also with the Wild Rose Caucus. His piece from the weekend up at the Calgary Herald on uh, why the um, discontents within the UCP might want to think twice. Is it really in the interest of the party or conservatism in Alberta uh, to throw Jason Kenney overboard? But ultimately, look, conservatives Got to make a decision. Who's the best person to lead us into the next election? You know, and, and Jason Kenney's been dealt a bad hand in a lot of ways. I wouldn't deny that. Again, I think if Rachel Notley had won re-election, how much benefit of the debt would she be getting right now from a, a conservative opposition? But sure, ultimately, look, Kenney's going to have to start delivering some wins. You know, if he loses this equalization referendum, that's further egg on his face. If he has to break his word again on a, another lockdown, that would be hard to, to recover from. Even on, you know, and, and look, I support uh, voter recall and, and citizens initiative. But they haven't even yet proclaimed that into law. That's not actually in force. You can't go out and start a petition in your writing to recall the, your MLA. Because even though the law passed and received royal assent, that last final step, for the government to proclaim it into law hasn't happened. So what's what's the case for re-elect Jason Kenney in 2023? It's a long way to go between now and the next election. There's still time for him to rack up some big wins and put that on the, the campaign uh, ad. But at this point, it would be a tough sell, I suspect. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.